It's been said that if you want to know what a given religion believes, listen to how they pray. What it is that we say to God and how we speak to God reveals our theology, what we believe about God. How we pray reveals what we believe or who we believe God to be. Prayer describes theology. It's a fitting statement to begin the second part of our study of the Lord's Prayer found in Matthew chapter 6 verses 9 through 13. The realization that how we pray and what we pray describes our theology. And in this case, teaches us, describes Jesus' own theology that he hands to his disciples. And so it is a meaningful and worthwhile study for us as we open our Bibles to Matthew chapter 6, verse 9. It's also a fitting beginning for us to begin this message even with prayer of our own. I'll read our text, Matthew 6, 9 through 13, as a prayer for us as we begin. Pray then in this way. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Karl Barth has said that to clasp the hands in prayer is the beginning of an uprising against the disorder of the world. To clasp the hands in prayer is the beginning of an uprising against the disorder of the world. In other words, prayer is a revolutionary act. And no one should believe that more fervently than God's people, the followers of Jesus, who imitate our Lord in praying to the Father. Our prayers, in a sense, unite us with God's will. They draw us into God's presence. They are our communication with God in a way in which we allow our will to be bent a little bit more towards God's each and every day. Prayer is a revolutionary act. It should not take any convincing for us to believe that prayer is important, that it is an essential and vital part of the Christian life. What is more difficult is to know how to pray, what to pray, when to pray. And maybe that's why the disciples in Luke's account ask Jesus for a prayer. They'd seen John's followers and their Jewish counterparts learn to pray from their masters, and they ask from Jesus a prayer. How is it we should pray, and what should we pray? Prayer has been an evolving practice over the years of Christian history. It was not always the way it is now, like so many things in the Christian tradition. You see, the Jews of Jesus' day had their own recited prayers, their own written prayers that they would recite two to three times per day according to their tradition. John's disciples, John the Baptist, had their own prayers, as we see in Luke 11, 1. 
And when Jesus gives the disciples this pattern, this model prayer that would become for centuries an example of how Christians ought to pray, it was not just good advice or not just theology about Jesus or, or a prayer for that moment. It became for the earliest Christians their prayer. The Lord's prayer became a mark of God's people. It was a distinctive prayer for the followers of Jesus. Some of our earliest Christian documents, one by the name of the Didache, teach us that the earliest Christians took this prayer not just as a way that they ought to pray, but as a prayer they should pray over and over again. You see, coming out of their Jewish heritage, so many of them were used to the tradition that they ought to pray to God two or three times a day in a scheduled and recited way. Saying your own prayers was an act of devotion and an act of submission to God. And the earliest Christians took this Lord's Prayer and prayed it, many of them, three times a day in the first century world. Now, I don't know what tradition you come from or what your prayer life has been like. It's no surprise that the Protestant tradition has pushed back some against written prayers and scheduled prayers and anything that might become rote or repetitious in a way that it loses its meaning. That it would become vain repetition. But it's worth noting as we continue our study of the Lord's Prayer that these words were lived and enacted and retold and prayed by the earliest Christians. Possibly not more than, than two decades after Matthew and Luke wrote their Gospels, even before all the New Testament was written, an anonymous Christian instructed that the following prayer should be said three times a day. He said, quote, You shall pray just as the Lord commanded it in his Gospel. Our Heavenly Father, hallowed be your name. Let your kingdom come. Let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today the bread that we need and forgive us our debt just as we forgive our debtors. Do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil for yours is the power and the glory forever. And from that early date to this day, this single prayer has played a vital role in the worship and devotions of Christians around the world. It's one of those elements of Christianity that connects us across time and space to what exactly Jesus was doing. Now I'm aware that, that many have stopped saying this prayer in any formal way and certainly don't pray it two or three times a day. It's not spoken as frequently as it was in the past, especially in certain church traditions. In some ways, a spontaneous prayer or prayers that are, are not written or formal in advance have become more popular because they allow people to express our, our feelings in a way that isn't rote or isn't conjured up in advance. But here in this model prayer, in this example, in these timeless words that have guided the Christian church for centuries, are words offered to us by God himself. A model, an example, a pattern for us to follow. Last week we began this prayer, first by hearing and listening to what it meant to say, Our Father in Heaven. To acknowledge that we come to God first to talk about Him, not to talk 
about ourselves and that our relationship, our relational connection to the God of the universe invites us to call him Father. That summed up in that one word, in that relationship, is all of the Christian story. That our creator, that the maker of the universe invites us to call him by name. And in moving in like fashion, just as we pray first our Father in heaven, we pray, hallowed be your name. That the same name that delivered the Israelites out of Egypt be lifted up and exalted today. That his name be glorified by his own power and because it is worthy of being lifted up. We pray first by talking to God about God, not talking to God about us. So we come today to Matthew chapter 6, verse 10, where we continue in the middle of what are called the you petitions of the Lord's Prayer before we move on to the we petitions. Again, we're talking to the Father first about Himself before we move on to talking about ourselves. And so verse 10 says, Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Haddon Robinson, the great preacher, says that after talking to God about his person, we now speak to him about his program. Having talked to God about his person, we now speak to him about his program. Where is history going, Christians ask. The answer in the Bible is that history is moving toward a particular goal. That's moving toward a great and far off event. That kingdom when Christ will come back and rule and move us into eternity and when men and women and angels will join in singing his praises, history is going somewhere. All of the Bible points to that event. From the very beginning, there was morning and evening, light and dark. And from the moment that humans rebelled, God began working his program to redeem all of creation, to bring it back into right relationship with God, to restore justice on earth, to bring his righteousness where it belongs, and to allow his glory to reign and rule forever. You see, Christians believe that history is going somewhere. It's not just moving around as it wills. It's not a meaningless movement of events towards no particular end. It is going somewhere. It is his story working towards his conclusion. So when we pray, your kingdom come, we're joining with that story. We're joining with God's movement in history to bring things towards his final and ultimate goal. We're praying as Jesus was praying and acting for the redemption of the world, for a radical defeat and an up, uprooting of evil, for heaven and earth to be brought together at last, for God to be all in all. You see, Jesus came speaking and preaching about a kingdom. Some have argued that when Jesus said, your kingdom come, he was talking about the kingdom that had already been realized in Jesus, that the kingdom of God was already present in Jesus, fully here, fully now, already in history. Others have argued that he wasn't talking about a kingdom right away. He's talking about a, a future kingdom, the kingdom of God in the future that's, that's not here with us, something entirely spiritual awaiting us in some future day. What we believe and what the majority of scholars now agree in Christian 
life. That the kingdom of God in Jesus is both present and future. It is a kingdom that is already but not yet. That the, the realm of God has broken in in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus and is available and present now to those who believe in Him even as we await its full consummation at the end of history. The kingdom of God is already here but not yet. It's both present and future. And so we live in the in-between times as followers of Jesus. And when Jesus invites us to pray, your kingdom come, what he's inviting us to do is to be a part of his movement in history, of the revolution of God, of the life-changing movement of the Spirit who has broken into the, our world and invited us to experience a foretaste, a glimpse of the kingdom that is to come. And so Christians live in this temptation. On the one hand, we're tempted to act as if God's kingdom is already here in Jesus, that we can have full access to all of God's future, even though we know that we can't. And we're tempted, on the other hand, to, to live and to act as if God's kingdom is so distant and so spiritual and so removed from us that we couldn't possibly be a part of it now. But in reality, Jesus' prayer for his kingdom to come and his will to be done on earth as it is in heaven forces us to live in this tension between the already and the not yet. We are to live as those who have come to know Jesus as king, even while we await for his kingdom to be brought in fullness, for his rule and reign to be over all creation forever. And as Jesus prays this prayer, it becomes evident that Christians today ought to have this same longing and ache and desire for the reign and rule of God to be, to be realized in full on this earth now. We ought to live in eager expectation of the day that God would set the world right. And since the kingdom is already making itself present in some way in us, and since we're called to live now in light of that future story, each and every act of ours, each act of love and peace and justice and wisdom that we do is a part of that final kingdom reality. We are building the kingdom. Not a kingdom that we could control, not a, a political kingdom that we could establish, not something we do by our own hands, but by inviting the Spirit of God to renew and to restore and to redeem our lives. We invite God's kingdom to come on earth as it is in heaven. And so in the poetic and prophetic announcement of what Jesus is saying, we read in Isaiah 52 verses 7 through 10, how beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news, who proclaim peace, who bring good tidings, who proclaim salvation, who say to Zion, your God reigns. Listen, your watchmen lift up their voices. Together they shout for joy. When the Lord returns to Zion, they will see it with their own eyes. Burst into songs of joy together, you ruins of Jerusalem. For the Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord will lay bare his holy arm in the sight of all the nations and all the ends of the earth will see the salvation of our God. And so Jesus' prayer is in line 
with an entire movement of biblical history that proclaims that God's kingdom will someday be established, that all things will be brought under his rule and reign, and every tongue will confess that he is Lord. And when we pray that prayer, we bend our will a little bit closer to his. We speak about God's person, but we also pray about his program, about what he's doing on earth and around us. And we say, your kingdom come and may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, as above, so below. It's a reality that was so fundamental to the early Christian's belief that they couldn't help but pray this prayer over and over again. On earth as it is in heaven. This teaching and thought keeps moving through the earliest Christian writings in the New Testament that there would be a new heavens and a new earth. In fact, Revelation 20 and 22 sums it up at the end of the New Testament by saying that history is going to to culminate, to wrap up, not in us escaping into the sky, into some, uh, some disembodied state in heaven, but of heaven coming down to earth. The final state of the world, according to Revelation 20 to 22, is on earth. And so Jesus gives us these words in his model prayer, your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. As believers, as followers of Jesus who have tasted his goodness and have tasted the true life that he offers the world, we are to live in longing and eager expectation of that new life breaking into this old one. And our lives are to help point the world to that future reality. And of course, the truth is that if I'm going to pray your kingdom come, For this earth, then I have to also pray it for myself too. If I'm going to pray this for all people, I have to pray it for myself too. Now, are we willing that every little kingdom that we would rather establish be pushed aside so that Jesus' kingdom would have priority? Are we willing that all these little kingdoms that I worry and concern myself about would be torn down so that Jesus Christ can reign in me and in my life. See, the truth of the Lord's Prayer is that if I want to pray this for the earth, I have to pray it for myself also. So we pray, Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And after that, verse 10, the Lord's Prayer shifts from the you petitions, petitions about the Father, to the we petitions, the petitions about us. First, we talked to him about his person, and then we talked to God about his program. We talked to God about the Father, and now we speak to him about his family, saying, give us this day our daily bread. Give us this day our daily bread. And what does the text mean there? What is this prayer for daily bread all about? We know from the biblical tradition that the people of God relied on God to provide 
manna for heaven when they were starving in the wilderness. They knew from their own story what it meant to depend on God for his daily bread. It's speaking about the basic necessities of life, the very things that give us life and breath. We depend on God for these things. It can be difficult to remember that in a world where we provide so much for ourselves, where we have freezers full of food and pantries stocked with, with enough for several days, if not more. And so it's important for us to remember that these disciples didn't have stockpiles of resources. They were living hand to mouth. They were going day by day, trusting in God's provision, following Jesus's leadership. This prayer for our daily bread is exemplified, even in the way that he provides food for those who follow him, where he hosts banquets and meals and parties. Jesus is providing daily bread himself. And so we depend on God for our basic necessities. You know, it's funny, this little phrase, daily bread, is is a little bit of a mystery. That word for daily in the Greek, epiousios, it's used only in the Bible and only in the Lord's Prayer. It's not used anywhere else in Greek literature that we know about. And so it has been a mystery for translators for quite some time. What does it mean when the scriptures say our daily bread? We haven't really known exactly what to do with that. And then a couple years ago, researchers found an ancient piece of papyri, old paper, and scribbled down on this old paper was what they determined to be a woman's grocery list, a grocery list from the ancient world. And on that list, next to every perishable item was this little Greek word, epiousios, that is enough for today. Supply for the day ahead. And it may not be normal for us who don't buy our food one day at a time and who can perhaps predict where our next meal will come from even though so much of the world cannot. But Jesus prays, Father, give us this day what we need for the day ahead. Give us our supply for tomorrow. And so if you're praying this prayer in the morning, you're praying, give us, God, what we need for today. If you're praying in the evening, you're saying, give us, God, what will be necessary for tomorrow. And to pray this is to pray as a part of a larger Christian community, to realize that not all of the world has right now what it needs for tomorrow. You'll notice that this prayer is plural. You see, so much of Western Christianity has made the Bible singular in particular prayers, even those offered by Jesus. It's strange that we could take the Lord's Prayer and make it so personal when so many of the words are plural. Give us our daily bread. And so we pray this not disconnected, not as lone ranger Christians, but as a part of a larger body, as a a connected Christian community. We pray, give your people what they need for tomorrow. And so when we pray this prayer, we don't do it disconnected from reality, but we pray it and allow it to pull us into the middle of the needs of people across the world. And we sit in that reality that not everyone has what they need, but we also sit in the reality that we can trust God for what we need every day. 
And this goes against our mentality that says we have to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and provide for ourselves or depend on our own strength or the lie that tells us that we are the lords of our own worlds or the gods of our own lives, that what we have we acquired by our own power. We're reminded in this prayer that everything we have, every good gift is from God above. And in so much as we have more than we need, we're called to pray this prayer and realize that we can be a part of answering it too. That when we pray, give us this day our daily bread, we realize that if our hands are holding more than necessary, perhaps someone else should have something we have. Generosity comes from those who pray the prayer of Jesus. Maybe we need to remind ourselves that the followers of Jesus weren't wealthy with pantries or refrigerators filled with food, but were people who bowed their heads and fell to their knees and said, Father, give us what we need for tomorrow. And maybe we need to remind ourselves that some of the things we think we need are not necessities. And that if God has not provided it for tomorrow, perhaps we didn't need it in the first place. And so we pray, give us today what we need according to your good grace and love. You see, the further we get into this prayer, the more we realize that our petitions to God are also calls to action. That as we pray to God, it's not so much about changing God's mind, who never changes and who always provides and who is going to lift his name up regardless, but about bending our wills closer to his. You see, we're called to be a part of the prayer. We're called to be people who respond to God's kingdom by helping it come. We're called to be people who respond to the need for daily bread by helping others receive theirs. We're called to live out in word and in deed the truth that Jesus is Lord. And it was Jesus' lordship and his words in this prayer that led the earliest Christians to begin to be transformed in their mind and heart and their soul to act out this kingdom and to pray with authenticity and truthfulness, your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. They found themselves wrapped up in the program of God and the mission of Jesus on this earth of drawing all people into the rightful reign and rule of God himself. They were to live in such a way that if the world went looking for a prayer, they would find it in Christians. You see, if it was part of Jesus' task to teach his earliest followers to pray in this way, it becomes our task too as we imitate him to teach the world to pray in this way. And what would it look like to teach the world to pray and to live like this? And how might we get that opportunity? Well, in Luke's gospel, Jesus' life and teachings and actions led them to come asking for a prayer. 
And the reason that they asked him for a prayer was because they saw what he was doing. Something tells me there's a lesson there for us too. That we might live our lives in such a way that when the world needs a prayer to pray, they come to us. May the kingdom of God and the will of our Lord be so evident in our lives that when the world comes looking for a prayer, they know exactly where to turn. Join me as we pray now. God, we have no need that you cannot meet. There is nothing that you cannot do. There is nothing we need that you do not provide. Father, we pray that our lives and our actions would point the world towards your kingdom and bring your kingdom into this earth. We pray that you would provide for all those who go without, even in this moment. We rely on you. We depend on you. We pray that our will would be submitted to your will because you lead to life. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.